Smart Counsel is sponsored by the Masters in Counseling program at Multnomah University in Portland, Oregon. Reese Basimio is a counselor at New Pattern Counseling in Gresham, Oregon, who specializes in gender, sexuality, addiction, and spirituality. Ben Poling is a counselor in Portland, Oregon, who specializes in sexual addiction and identity at a New Day Counseling Center. Welcome to Smart Counsel, Differential Diagnoses. Hi, this is Reese Basimio from Smart Counsel, and I'm doing this little extra intro before the episode we have today. Today's episode is one we pulled out of the archives. Uh, so this one is featuring me and Joshua Moore and a very good friend, colleague, uh, Samantha Blagier, and we had a lot of fun. This was also back in the days when our equipment was not quite as sophisticated as it is today. So in that note, please do pardon the sound quality. Uh, we really loved the conversation and still wanted to share it. So there is that. By the by, where where is Joshua Moore? So Joshua Moore, a dear friend, always and forever, he got a very, very fancy teaching job and has uh, migrated to really, really cool and exciting things. Sometime we'll have him back on the show and have him talk about those because he's always a really good friend. But that's a little bit of the story there. And um, you can always find him and his practice on the web. Look up uh, neurofeedbackcare.com and you can find him. Uh, meanwhile, uh, thanks for listening to uh, the Smart Council podcast. Again, please do consider leaving us a five-star rating on iTunes or Spotify or SoundCloud. Also, uh, feel free to visit uh, smartcouncil.com or patreon.com slash smartcouncil as we are working toward being listener-supported. We appreciate you listening and being part of our community. So let's keep the conversation going. Welcome to Smart Council, the definitively detailed discussion on differential diagnosis. Can I get any more D words in there? Nope, I think that's good. Uh, Smart Council provides perspectives and resources to providers and students on spirituality, mental health, addictions, relationships, and trauma. I'm Reese Basimio. And I'm Joshua Moore. And we're having a lot of fun. It is getting a little bit past our bedtimes. So, <laughs> well, close to the bedtime. Anyway. <laughs> are old. <laughs> We're getting a little, a little bit, yeah. <laughs> I've actually gone to bed with my two-year-old. Just like, yeah. she's going to bed, I'm going to bed. That's, going totally, to bed that's totally fair. <laughs> yeah, it's just exhausting. That is totally fair. <laughs> right. So we are welcoming into the studio Samantha Blazier. Hello. Hello. Nice to have you back. Thank you so much. Yeah, it's been a, little, been a hot minute since I've been on the podcast. It so. has been, and full disclosure, that episode sort of got dropped because the quality was so bad. <laughs> no. So. We had so many technical difficulties with that recording. Unfortunately, we'll probably never see the light of day, probably but we had not. a so, lot of fun. So you are new to the audience. I Yeah, my voice is now, my voice is new to the audience. Yeah. Right. Okay. So new voice, uh, but uh, not so much to us. Brace so, yourself. Right. <laughs> Watch out. Yeah. Right. So here's, here, here's the fun icebreaker question. So who did we have to meet to meet each other? Oh, oh that's a, it's interesting. So I, I met you through Reese. Josh uh, met them through, yes, through me. Reese, yeah. Right. I met Josh, I think through Paul Pastor our mystical author friend. Yeah, you were like emo and would sit up on the second story window of Aldrich Hall. Yes. Yeah, I, rem I remember you from that. Right. I was like, I should probably get his name. Right. <laughs> yeah, I was the forlorn emo kid sitting in the window. Yeah. <laughs> that was don't, like 15 years ago. Don't cry emo kid. Don't okay. cry emo kid. And of course, I met Josh through Reese. Right. And I met Reese through our uh, mutual, well, your former employer. My and, former employer. And possibly my current 
employer who will, right. will remain unnamed for right. the sake of this podcast. Okay. Uh, but we, we, we used to work together. We used to work together. Yes. yes. It was great fun in yeah. the, in the wide world of counseling. Yeah. So, uh, Speaking of which, yes. uh, what is your current corner of the counseling world? What my, do you do? My current corner of the counseling world. Um, well, I would like to, I need to, I need to brag for just a second. Okay. Because I now have a string of letters after my name. You have oh. letters. And I'm very proud. <laughs> oh my yes, goodness. I got all my letters at the end of last year. So okay. I am now Samantha Blazier, LPC, NCC, CADC1. Nice. Well yeah. done. Thank Bravo. You very much. Thank you. We're, we're clapping. We're clapping. I worked, I worked my butt off for that. <laughs> you so did it feels indeed. good. What does the NCC stand for? Uh, nationally certified counselor. That's what I so I'm okay. board certified. Yeah. I'm very excited. I've known Samantha since she was a wee little QMHA um, mm-hmm. back during internship. So yeah, I was green, green little intern. Yeah. Yes. So yeah. how far I've come. How far you've come. I cry at my desk a lot less these days. <laughs> that's great. That's, okay. That's a we good, good metric. It, it is good. For me, yes, it is. Uh, yeah. So my um, boring some tea. That's going to sound lovely on the microphone. So my current corner of the counseling world is I work for a intake team for a large community agency here in the uh, Portland metro area. And I do assessment assessments and diagnosing and level of care placement for new clients. A lot of diagnosing. A lot, a lot, a lot of, of di- a lot of diagnosing. That's that's the main thing. I, I talk to somebody for an hour and a half to two hours and try to give them the, the, the best diagnosis I can in that time so we can get them enrolled in treatment okay. and um, get their insurance to pay for it and uh, give their their counselor uh, uh, hopefully a good starting place mm. to help this to help this person. Yeah. I've never had a job anywhere close to like that. So I have a lot of questions. <laughs> oh, excellent. I have yeah. lots of answers. I've been there for almost five years now. So I've, I've, uh, I've got lots of, I can tell you the dirt. I believe it. You know, a lot of things. I know the things it's, I don't know all the things, but I know some things. All right. So, um, what kind of assessments, uh, do you usually use? So I currently only, uh, see adults. I have yet mm-hmm. to have anybody under the age of 18 come through my door. Apparently it does happen, but generally they, they try to get, uh, routed to like child and family teams. Um, and I mostly do adult outpatient, uh, community mental health. That is all that I'm doing right now. So it is a, it's a multifaceted assessment. We do a, we get some kind of basic demographic information, you know, just some cultural background kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, we do a suicide severity rating scale. We do a, you know, a PHQ nine for depression scale. Okay. And what else do we throw in there? And then we get into like the, you know, the, what I like to call the bones of the assessment, like the big biopsychosocial. We talk about, you know, we start out with what brings you in, what's going on for you. What's your primary goal for treatment. And then we ask about, you know, history, family history, mental illness. Tell me about your family of origin. Um, tell me about, you know, past traumas. Um, and of course, I give lots of disclosure up front about like, you can pass on any of these questions. You don't have to go into a lot of detail if you don't want to. It's up to you. Da, 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 da. And we talk about drugs, you know, do a very brief kind of drug and alcohol assessment to see if they need referral. Very brief uh, gambling, problem gambling assessment. And gosh, what else all do we do in there? We have some really nice questions in there about like, um, well, what do you like to do for fun? You know, what communities do you feel connected to? What do you imagine wellness looking like? Or what do you look like when you're doing well? So it's a really kind of a lovely, broad 
spectrum of questions. You're really going after a snapshot of the whole person as a person. Exactly. Yeah. In and 90 minutes. In in night, I can I can crank them out usually in about an hour twenty. Wow. Okay. Uh, yeah, it's kind of it's kind of amazing even for me sometimes. <laughs> but uh, sometimes I need that whole two hours. It just really depends on um, a lot of different factors. But yeah. And you're responsible for for placement. Uh, yes. Mm-hmm. So I assess level of care. Okay. Um, and then kind of figure out is that going to be. You know, am I recommending five sessions, 12 sessions, 24 sessions, or are they SPMI and we're kind of not sure how many sessions you're going to need? What is Uh, SPMI? uh, Severe and persistent Mm. mental mental illness. Okay. Yeah. Which is your things like schizophrenia, bipolar one. Things that might be around for a while. Things that are, are, yeah, severe and persistent. They're probably not going to ever completely go away. We're probably going to get into some of those, aren't we, here today? A little bit. I think so. Yeah, we're going to talk about about some differential diagnosis. We will indeed. Mm -hmm. So that is really exciting. So you're doing primarily assessments. Yep. Mm -hmm. And you get to function as sort of the the welcoming committee, the... Yeah. um, Not quite, not the gatekeeper, but like the the guide, the go down the street, not that route, triage expert. Yeah, we... So the the process of getting into most agencies is really interesting because you call, you know, you call like an intake line and they do like an initial screening. And then I think all of our, all of our folks who do our phone, our phone bank, um, excuse me, a screening, I believe they're all actually QMHAs. Um, so they do this initial kind of suicide assessment and et cetera. And, you know, refer on if, if we're not appropriate for some reason, but mostly they schedule, then schedule the assessments with someone on my team. And then, you know, their first initial contact with someone face to face is obviously, you know, the front desk personnel, but really their first clinical contact is, is, you know, me and people on my team. So we're kind of the, like kind of the face of the company, which is I think kind of cool. Mm-hmm. Uh, Cause we get to like instill some hope and kind of demystify the process of, of engaging in mental health yeah. counseling. You know? Well, I think in a great opportunity, you get to demystify the face of mental health, but I'm thinking also like a huge diffusion role as well. Yeah. Diffusing tension, diffusing mm-hmm. panic, diffusing the overwhelming, like, I don't know where anything is. Yeah. I don't know so. what I'm doing here. I don't even know what wellness looks like and, right. you know, what I don't, I'm afraid y'all are going to throw me in a padded room if I tell you I want to hurt myself. And so we get to kind of go through the big three, you know, yeah. which is danger to self, eminent danger to self or others, uh, abuse of a vulnerable population and subpoenaed by the courts. Like those are the only reason why, you know, those first two are the only reason I'm going to come have the cops come get you like anything mm-hmm. else you can tell me, you know, and right. like, Oh really? I'm like, yeah, man, I'm like, I still get blown away every now and then how novel it is to have somebody just like listen and like you or mm-hmm. listen and not judge mm-hmm. or like listen and not freak out about you. Yeah. Um, I mean, it. well, and someone who can hear your story and hear about all the horrible things you've been through and be able to like, take it. Yeah. You know, be like, you're not going to scare me away. Right. Like I, we're, we are specifically trained to be able to go home at night and be okay. Like we, we can, do go home and sleep. We do go home we and sleep. We do go home yeah. and sleep. I might even listening. forget about you afterwards. <laughs> yeah. We, <laughs> <laughs> we don't always forget about you afterwards, no. but we can, we can, we can take it. You're not gonna, you're not gonna harm us by telling us your story. And that's part of the the therapeutic process is having that safe space to say all that horrible yeah. stuff that's happened to you. And it's one of the gifts yeah. of the clinical experience yeah, is absolutely. that, um, value neutral, but you're very valuable sort of environment. Yeah. So in this environment, um, 
there's the diagnosis, which mm-hmm. is a fixture of the assessment. It's mm-hmm. uh, I know for sure when insurance is involved, it's it's part of the goal of assessment. You know, assessments right. for diagnosis and yeah. prognosis and things. And, and so. all of our diagnoses are provisional, right? This is not a well, again. I just met with this person for an hour and a half, two hours. Um, I don't have a lot of collateral information. I only have client report at that point. Um, it's it's our best, well educated guess. That seems like a really, going on. that seems like a really helpful component. And um, without that component, the whole process could be really overwhelming. Yeah. Um, I had one colleague who, you know, when he was a student, uh, an LCSW student, he used to you know speak with great fear and reverence of the, the, the act of diagnosing and yeah. you know, taking very seriously. I'm putting this label on somebody's life. Uh, right. And we're but, like, Meh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I know. Uh, we'll just throw it around. And I, and I said to him, wait until you can put a director's hold on somebody. Um, which I yeah. knock on, I need something to knock on. No, I have never had to put a director's hold on somebody. What is, this? what is this you speak of? Oh, it's, that's the one where you can, you're authorized to send someone to the hospital even without the, without their consent. Oh, okay. Yeah. We are, uh, I, I only have, I don't have all the counties yet. I'm trying to collect all three, mm-hmm. all four, if I'm real lucky. But uh, I only have one county that I can do that so far. And I've yet to be, I've yet to have to to use that yet. I've okay. usually been pretty good at convincing people to go to the hospital of yeah. their own free will. That, that is good. I think <laughs> I did it. Kind of amazing. I think in like five-ish years at our at our place, I think I did it twice. Yeah. And like, okay. um, it was like ah, yeah. it's, <laughs> it's jarring either way. It doesn't feel great to take someone's rights away from them but when you're taking their rights away from them to keep to keep them safe and to keep the community safe you can usually still sleep at night right yes usually there's a lot we could say there maybe sometime maybe we will some other time. that's a whole um, podcast right that's a whole, that's a whole podcast, podcast yeah. and a half yeah. Yeah. but reporting and uh, director's holds a whole yeah whole thing. We'll get I, a, I used to work in a residential setting um, oh yeah. rosemont when it was in existence um and so we had a lot of things like that happen at those facilities of course they were minors so i mean the rules are probably very different yeah. and we had a lot more control i would think than than yeah. than if they were adults you know mm-hmm. <clears throat> yeah that being said the views and opinions i express on the podcast <laughs> are my own and do not represent any agencies I may work for, right. past, future, uh, present, or future. Yep, we we don't re- we we're just speaking. Yeah. <laughs> um, but speaking of diagnosing, so so this was a topic Sam that you pitched, and I thought it was a really interesting one. And then in our pre conversation conversation, we were all getting really excited about it. So when we're talking about a differential diagnosis, what are, what is that? What does that mean? Uh, in my mind, a different differential diagnosis is when you have a couple, I think of them as like Venn diagrams and you have a couple of overlapping Venn diagrams of diagnoses that might fit this client at this point in their life at this moment or whatever, you know, might fit the symptoms they are describing and trying to whittle it down to what is the closest possible diagnosis. What is what is the closest to correct, quote unquote? And I hate to say the term correct because so much of what we do is an art and a science. Um, but trying to just get the best the best you can with the information you've got. So essentially, it's differentiating between this diagnosis or that diagnosis. Correct. Yeah, the rule ruling out what it's not and trying to get close to what it is. Mm, gotcha. Yeah. The difference between cataphatic and apophatic statements i suppose which do the what now um 
Uh, <laughs> right. Yeah. There's well, there's statements that say what is, and there's statements that say what's not. Right. So yeah. Um, like I think they're actually theological terms, but um, huh. well, and it's it's really close to the medical model, and because how the medical model works is ruling out what it's definitely not. Okay. Right. Yeah. Like you get a throat swab, it's definitely not strep. So what's left? Right. Oh well, pharyngitis or blah 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 blah. I am not a doctor. This is not medical advice. Uh. <laughs> <laughs> that could work. So, so clarifying a couple of terms. So, so you mentioned a provisional diagnosis. Mm-hmm. That's a temporary diagnosis meant to be updated within six months. Six months to yeah, okay. six months to a year. Okay. I think depending on um, a lot of times, like level of care. Mm-hmm. If you have somebody with more severe uh, symptoms or more, um, you know, their symptoms are interfering more with their ability to do essential, you know, what do they call them? IADLs, essential activities of of daily daily living. living. And like someone who's having a hard time feeding themselves, you know, bathing themselves, things like that. You're likely going to see an update within the first six months uh, versus someone who comes in with major depressive disorder, general anxiety disorder. You're probably going to do an update after the first year. So general, I mean, again, there's no, you can really update you can do an updated assessment, update the diagnosis really at any time. That seems appropriate. Right. That is um, something, but the, the emphasis should be the the update should happen sometime within ex- the first exactly. year. Exactly. Yeah. Makes sense. Absolutely. So then what are some diagnoses that frequently get confused for each other? Oh my goodness. So conflated. Exactly. So what, one of the things, one of the things I want to say is you, you do have the option of doing an unspecified diagnosis or an other specified in the DSM-5. So that's when somebody doesn't quite, like you're just not, you're just not sure, uh-huh. you know, if they or they don't quite meet criteria, you can do an unspecified. And most of those are on what's called the prioritized list. That's an insurance thing. Don't worry about it. So you can bill for them and it's fine. Okay. So don't worry if you have to do unspecified. Sure. I have a question about that right out of the yes. gate though. So, so, um, Knowing me, who sometimes has a fear of commitment, <clears throat> um, <laughs> uh, when is it? When is an unspecified diagnosis or other diagnosis appropriate versus when is it just you being kind of lazy or non-committal as a clinician? Interesting question. Yeah. Um, I think of the unspecified are I tend to use when I there's just that that little voice of doubt in my head, or they don't you know during that two hours I didn't get. Quite enough information to give them, like say they don't meet criteria for PTSD for whatever reason, they just haven't been able to give me all the check marks, you know, but my counselor spidey senses are telling me mm-hmm. that this sounds like trauma. Yeah, that would make sense. You go with your gut a little bit or yeah. you look at who's the individual and say, well, A, are they meeting all of the criteria? But it might also be a question of degree because you could mm-hmm. say, take generalized anxiety, you could say, here's somebody who they are stressed, but not quite every day. Mm-hmm. They sometimes have, hard, have a hard time with it, but sometimes mm-hmm. it gets overwhelming. You know, they're irritable, they're tense, they're tired, they're not concentrating well, but they don't have any impairment in their life. Right. So it seems like at that point, it's like, well, you're kind of like experiencing all of the criteria, but not really to the fullness mm-hmm. of them. And so mm-hmm. it seems like that might be an occasion for and not otherwise specified. Exactly. Maybe. And sometimes I use I use other other specified or un, I more likely I'm going to use unspecified because my my gut is telling me that this person needs treatment and I'm going to, you know, I'm going to make a clinical judgment that they need treatment. 
So you'll see a lot of unspecified depression or unspecified anxiety because this person is is likely to benefit from counseling, even if they don't meet full criteria right now. We want to get them in the door. There's some kind. My, my you know my opinion, my personal opinion is if they're in my office, their life is impaired somehow. Right, making that phone call, going through the whole rigmarole to get into counseling is not an easy one. You don't generally seek out counseling just for the fun of it, right? Just so no there's reason. something going on. Yeah. So that's that's where those unspecified can be really useful is to just help people, you know, to get into the door and kind of reduce that gatekeeping kind of kind of stuff. That makes sense. Yeah. In that in that sense, the diagnosis sort of becomes their all access pass yeah. to whatever services they need. Exactly. And hopefully yes. it can retain that sort of, you know, cheery uh association rather yes. than becoming the stigma. Exactly. The stigma. Ex- the stigma. Oh dear. So but getting back to your first question is yes. telling the difference between things. The one that I remember asking very early on, my very my very first job, you know, fresh out of fresh out of graduation, you know. Uh, was going into my supervisor's office and going, okay, what the heck is the difference between bipolar one disorder with psychotic features and schizoaffective disorder bipolar type? And she just kind of chuckled and laughed at me and almost, she was like, yeah, come on. And have a seat. <laughs> <laughs> like, ah, this Get comes up comfortable. This uh, comes up all the time. Cause this is not something that was taught in, <clears throat> in my graduate program um, and from feedback I've gotten from other clinicians is that a lot of graduate programs, unfortunately, don't talk about psychotic disorders very much uh, for whatever reason. Not in very much detail. Anyway. Not in very much detail. Yeah. Um, so what is the difference between bipolar one with psychotic features? And- my main go to is are they experiencing psychotic features when they are not manic? Aha. Right. So if they're only experiencing psychotic features when they're manic, I'm going to look more bipolar one Mm -hmm. with psychotic features. Now, that can get tricky, too, because there's also apparently a major depressive disorder with psychotic features. I have never seen that. That doesn't mean it doesn't exist. Uh, My sample size is pretty large at this point, but mm, um, I I suppose that could happen. Yeah. So that's making me think of something, and I'm going to mm-hmm. start incorporating some of our different cl- contexts into, mm-hmm. into yeah. all of this. Um, as we're talking about differential diagnoses, and you mentioned, so in this one, um, are they experiencing psychotic features generally at a baseline or only right. when manic? Exactly. And so that's making me think about um, the the Venn diagram of a strictly mental health diagnosis and a, an addiction-related diagnosis. Absolutely. So, you know, uh, the the which came first, the chicken or the egg, you know, which mm-hmm. came first, you know, the, the mental illness or the substance use. Mm-hmm. Almost a pointless question in most contexts, except for this one, where we might say, well, were you depressed and then you started using drugs to cope with it and mm-hmm. then developed both disorders? Or were you kind of fine and then you started using drugs and then the drugs mixed with your mm-hmm. brain and then you developed another disorder? Or have you not done meth for four or six months and you're still having hallucinations? For sure. Like then that tells me something. Right. You know, if you're if you're experiencing depression while you're drinking every day, I might say, let's stop drinking and see what happens. Mm -hmm. If you stop drinking for, you know, at least 120 days and are still feeling depressed, then I say it may not be the alcohol. So Mm -hmm. um, and that's it's that's it gets so challenging because it's it's really hard to diagnose somebody when they're actively using like abusing drugs or alcohol and then being like, well, you need to be clean for 90 days before I can get you a diagnosis. 
in the technical true sense of the word, yes, but then functionally that just doesn't that happen. Doesn't so because they're self medicating something, right? Like, something's going Maybe on. The diagnosis you know? could be addiction. The diagnosis, yeah, right. <laughs> we'll yeah, start there. I don't that, know. That, that gets them yeah. again. That gets them in the door. Yeah, that's that's what what you mean. in the door. Yeah. It sounds true if that's the context. I can. Yeah, and then that's where again differential diagnosis. You can listen to their symptoms and then put a rule out of a psychotic disorder. Mm-hmm. You know, saying like client you know, uh, needs, uh, you know, 90, 120 days of, Mm -hmm. of abstaining from all non-prescribed substances for diagnosis to be confirmed or something like that, you know, but the rule that at least lets the reader know that this was considered, Uh there were traits observed, we should keep it in mind. Exactly. And I like to think of rule outs and unspecifieds as little love notes to the counselors about like, (laughs) Hey, so sweet of you. So check this out. Like this, I was kind of thinking this, but like, I can't confirm it so but like check this out uh-huh. yeah that's my little love notes to the counselors so related to that um can you bill off of a rule out no it cannot be primary oh, okay you have to have something billable so have have as something. primary right. your rule outs are always going to be your secondary tertiary etc okay. yeah makes sense no. okay so a a hot button differential diagnosis for me that comes up in my context because i uh i'm in private practice right now and uh and i try to do the dual diagnosis work when, mm-hmm. when, when I can, it, mm-hmm. sometimes it requires a referral out because there's just too much symptom, but, um, they have too many symptoms. Proper grammar. Thanks Reese. Okay. Meh. But we're an English majors for counseling. <laughs> True. <laughs> it's not like we talk for a living. It's fine. <laughs> <laughs> but, um, determining, do you have depression? Do you have persistent mood disorder? Do you have anxiety? Do you have mm-hmm. trauma or, are you caught up in active addiction, active acting out, mm-hmm. um, which depending on how you're understanding, understanding addiction could even fr- get even further dicey because it's not mm-hmm. just drugs and alcohol, but there's gambling, there's sexual addictions, there's food addictions, there's these covert, like I'm obsessing over work and it's socially ac- acceptable. And maybe my, mm-hmm. I'm keeping my body healthy of chemicals, but I'm acting in, in some other ways. And so, mm-hmm. Well, and even the socially acceptable, you know, non-controlled uh, substances like caffeine. If somebody is telling me that they're not sleeping very well and that they're anxious and they're like, I don't do and I don't do any drugs. Like, how much coffee are you drinking? Oh, I don't drink coffee. Okay. How many energy drinks do you have? Oh, I have like four or five monsters every day. And I'm like, no. Okay. Right. Or if we're going to incriminate even more people say, so how much time every day do you spend on Netflix mm-hmm. or other media platforms? dissociating from your reality guilty yeah me too anyway so that's a that's, so that's the one to, to think about when mm-hmm. when diagnosing is um they might come in saying i want to i want to feel less depressed i want to feel less anxious mm-hmm. and the the surrounding behaviors the the compulsive behaviors especially when there's chemicals involved um i mean those really need to be addressed and mm-hmm. I, w- I would venture to say it where, where possible, and this isn't always possible because of like billing, billing purposes, but where, where the substance abuse diagnosis can be primary, that to me kind of makes more sense because mm-hmm. that is it's something that needs that needs to be addressed with some urgency. Not necessarily well, it's the thing that you can be certain of. It's the thing we can be right. certain yeah. of. Yeah. yeah. And then you can get the you know, you can get quantitative data 
you know, you have them do a UA for you, a urinalysis for those uh, who are not sud counselors. You can have them do a UA. They're going to have substances in their pee or not, you know, presumably right. you observed that UA and you know it's their pee, um, which I did for three years. That was super fun. That was so, so much fun. <laughs> that was so much fun. Well, I watched so many ladies pee. That's fun in air quotes. <clears throat> yeah, it is. Yeah, it's part of the job. It is what it is. Uh, but you have that data like and they, they're, you know, if they're doing harm reduction, you see those numbers go down and then you can have that, that in from that like hardcore data. Mm-hmm. But otherwise it's kind yeah. of a crapshoot yeah, in definitely. a lot of ways yeah. to use a gambling term. Sorry, problem gamblers. That's okay. Um, <laughs> Josh, I know you were saying, so you have a different relationship with diagnosis. Well, yeah. So, I mean, I, I practice some um, brain training modalities and I partner with a lot of other clinics. So, mm-hmm. um, People who come to me usually have money, mostly because I'm a cash pay clinic and I do a lot of alternative modalities that insurance just doesn't play ball with usually. Um, I mean, there's exceptions, but but I'm not under Kaiser, for example. Um, but I do neurofeedback and biofeedback and cranial electrostimulation therapy and a bunch of other things like that. And, and so my relationship with diagnosing is a little bit different mm-hmm. because we are thinking about brain balance sometimes more than we're thinking about diagnosis. And mm-hmm. to some degree that might be, you know, structured into our field intentionally to try to avoid some of that language. Um, partially because there are exceptions. You don't treat using a diagnosis, um, because, um, if we're looking at brain balance, sometimes there are, uh, symptom clusters that will confuse you or will look like something, but be something else. So if you're looking mm-hmm. at say like a spec scan, I'm certified as a brain health coach through the Amen clinic. So I can read spec scans and mm. been doing that for a while. Um, sometimes something looks like uh, ADHD, but it's more schizophrenic or bipolar. And mm-hmm. you can tell by the spec scan. And the funny thing is if we have the spec scan, that actually is something that will inform, I don't do this, obviously. I, I contract out or work with other clinics like like the Amen Clinic is one. Mm-hmm. Um, and what's, that, what's that clinic? The Amen Clinic. Amen. Um, after Daniel Amen? Yes, after Daniel Amen. So I, I work closely with them. The medications for the brain balance, they manage that. I don't do any of that. Mm-hmm. Are oftentimes more effective and they wouldn't be with me if they didn't already try the traditional approach and it failed. So a lot of times I'm scooping together you know, the groups of people that have money that have tried eight or nine other things that haven't succeeded. And part of it is that sometimes there are unusual manifestations for ADHD, yeah. especially with kids, mm-hmm. especially with kids. And that I'm not even sure how often times it is ADHD. And I have a skewed perspective because I'm only getting the problem cases in my office. I'm not getting mm-hmm. the average ADHD case. So yeah. if they come to my office, something's been going wrong eight or nine different times, you know? <laughs> you yeah. know? So it's, it's usually something that's re- kind of manifesting atypically. Mm-hmm. Um, and so we work with it more on a brain balance level. There's a number of different ways to do that with a number of different kinds of treatments. Um, personally, when it comes down to like the big, giant, huge assessment, uh, I like the spec scan. There are other ways to do that. Like we're getting into brain mapping and I'm working on my QEEGD. Uh, it's a certification for brain mapping. I don't think anyone wow. has it in this area. Um, and I'd be happy to be a brain mapper, uh, but I probably still will favor the spec scan. I think I could. Mm-hmm. So, but, it, but yeah, it's really interesting when you just are tired of guessing, mm-hmm. you can do brain maps, you can do spec scans, you can do genetic testing to figure out what their nervous system will metabolize or be allergic to or respond mm-hmm. appropriately to. You can get some of those meds off the list that would be problematic. 
Yeah, that is something I believe that HealthShare has started paying for is the genetic testing within the last like year or two. That's cool. Is doing the blood test to be like which medications likely to work better with your body, and I'm so glad they're doing that now. That's That's amazing. I obviously don't prescribe, but but Mm -hmm. being somebody who refers to those doctors and contracts and works with those doctors, I talk to the technicians and the lab workers all the time, and they're amazing people. And I probably have about I'm a small private practice, but I probably have about four clients that are alive today because of the genetic testing. Yeah. I can't give specifics as to why that test saved their life, but um, as far as everybody's mindset was going a million miles in the wrong direction, mm-hmm. and the genetic test swung everybody back <laughs> to the correct direction. So this just feels like this total game changer as far as method of assessment. Um, yeah, I mean, like- diagnosing, it's like, yeah, it's, it's messy. I mean, because I, I, I take cash and I, I work more with brain balance, we are kind of out of the diagnosing game a little bit. Mm-hmm. I still will if I'm requested to, and, and we have our own assessments. There's some standards of practice within in certain fields like SPECT or neurofeedback, um, but they are just different. Does that make sense? And we have classes and courses in CEUs that we take on, you know, brain balancing and how that correlates to mental health diagnoses, Mm -hmm. but it's just, it's just a different game. So that makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. So I'm sitting here like not talking, listening to all you guys going, oh yeah, oh yeah, oh yeah. Yeah, It's just been a while. I've been out of the game. Yeah. (laughs) Right. Yeah. Yeah. But I'm I'm listening to you talk and thinking, wow, like you're able to do with like one fancy tech move, what it could take me like, you know, hours and weeks to do through conversation. And a lot of times, I mean, you guys know this and I I know this because I used to work, you know, in more traditional industry, but, but a lot of times they come in the office and it looks like something and Mm -hmm. that's in fact what it is. And your gut, you have very, very good intuition. Like once you've been in the field for like 10 years, you know, you just, Mm -hmm. you just, it's kind of obvious. Like it's, and and not, not because you like go through and you check the criteria. It's because you've checked the criteria a hundred times before on that diagnosis. So, (laughs) so. well, and you start to learn what questions to ask, like in a addition or you come up with your own creative ways to to kind of get the information you need and talking about especially like what, what you were saying about I've I've these see these kids who've been who've been slapped with an ADHD diagnosis I'm not convinced is ADHD right you know you see this a lot with adults who are like oh yeah I was given a diagnosis of ADHD when I was a child and then they also tell you about all of the horrific stuff that was going on at home mm, that right. the teachers and the doctors knew nothing about. Right. So, uh, I want to ask questions about ADHD. Oh, okay, you first, Josh. So, just just want to mention, uh, mm-hmm. an associate of mine created some software to assess for epilepsy. It's sometimes hard to diagnose epilepsy because they kind of have to have actual so like... Uh, like a grand mal seizure? Well, not necessarily a grand mal seizure, but they have to have active epilepsy when you're doing the EEG recordings. And they don't always have that even though they have epilepsy. Even though right. they could have grand mal seizures, you're not always going to see it. And so that can be really frustrating some methods are wear this giant hat that you hope stays on properly and just carry it around for a week. Obviously, that doesn't yeah. work for everybody because not all seizures manifest as often. Um, so one method was to have software look at it and see the epilepsy uh, despite not being able to see it with the naked eye. And Ooh. this associate was able to accurately identify who had epilepsy. of the time. But there was also a bunch of false positives in the study. Some of the kids with ADHD, 20% of the kids with ADHD... We're, we're, we're popping false positives for epilepsy. Wow. And, and so that, that's troubling. That, that, that's actually published and out there, and it's actually yeah. a kind of a shaking the industry a little bit. You can look it up. That was an associate of mine. I've spent some time with this individual. Hmm. Um, that's a little bit of a problem if it's not, uh, you know, in some, I don't know what that means. Maybe mm-hmm. they grow out of it. Maybe they don't. We just don't know enough about brain stability to comment on what is what with, with absolute certainty. Hmm. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. That makes Absolutely, sense. And I can yeah. see where that would be troubling because if I, like, 
like ADHD and epilepsy. That there seems like there's a big jump between those. Mm-hmm. Sort of, but but it's not a grand mal seizure. And there's a lot of epilepsy where it's just it's just there, uh-huh. kind of ticking away at your resources, your neurological resources. Yeah. It's mm-hmm. not you know not all epilepsy is a grand mal seizure. Mm-hmm. Um, there's all kinds of different kinds of seizures, and epilepsy is something that you can just see in the back of their head, kind of taxing their nervous system. Mm-hmm. Well, of course, it could look like ADHD. Okay. You know, yeah. Well, and I could imagine that a a small seizure in one's say occipital cortex could look like schizophrenia you know that might cause some visual hallucinations if you know further study i don't think he actually published this but but we might someday someday we might be thinking about things like bipolar schizophrenia migraines asthma as being on a seizure spectrum in the same way that you say that like Asperger's is on the autism spectrum. You might think of it like that. They might just be different branches. Yeah. Yeah. So, different. I mean, your brain is misfiring in different places in exactly. your brain and manifesting in different ways. With different dynamics and different yep. stabilizing techniques, which sense. can result in different symptom presentations. Yeah. So yes. Yes. Now, oh, so about happy. 15 to 20 years away from actually like making that shift, but that that's very likely going to happen. That's, that's really the cool. Guess. That's I'm exciting. excited about that. Okay. Everybody stay tuned. Sorry. You heard Everybody it here first. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's, <laughs> really, that's really cool because I want to know why somebody with schizophrenia or bipolar disorders brain is well, making too much dopamine work? you know like exactly yeah. Yeah. like so you notice that some of these these diagnoses the drug cl- the drug classes all seem to work for different groups of diagnoses for a reason because mm-hmm. it's the same inherent instability like yeah. why, why are we using like these you know neurologically suppressing drugs for all these different groups of diagnoses well because they are actually potentially related diagnoses yes but that's doing that's, something that's just theory okay yeah it's just just just, <laughs> just a, theory that's our best guess yeah so i want to go back to a question yeah. about adhd uh sam you'd brought up beforehand uh i think you mentioned your big four and adhd being one of them Mm -hmm. uh well tell us more what are you thinking there or what's the problem coming up there so a lot of times ptsd and adhd get very confused for each other in adults it would seem because of the trouble with concentration trouble with memory um, having a hard time sitting still, you know, hype, I could hypervigilance could look a lot like restlessness or restlessness could look a lot like hypervigilance mm-hmm. being distracted by noise and stimuli around you could be ADHD. That could be hypervigilance, right? right. Like it what's, what's going on there. So these two look a lot like each other. And I think both could potentially go back to attachment also or attachment failure somewhere in the past. And you could also just have both too. Like, you, you know, could like it's, you could have both, you know, um, it's, but yeah, it can go back to attachments and trauma. And then that leads me into one of my other big four of personality disorders, mm. right? Is I personally, again, this is my clinical thing. I rarely give somebody a personality disorder diagnosis. I almost always give them PTSD. That's fair. I don't think I've 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 heard some people claim or believe in theory that they're on the spectrum of PTSD. I'm yeah. not sure. That's not obvious to me yeah. in every yeah. situation, but mm-hmm. but they are highly comorbid or mm-hmm. usually comorbid. Absolutely. Well, I think I think when you start to understand trauma as a spectrum, that makes mm-hmm. a whole lot more sense in a lot of ways and um, allows for a softening of diagnoses. And you could say that exactly. PTSD at a particular developmental stage, you know, could leave someone very vulnerable to a personality disorder. For sure. And something Absolutely. like that. I don't know. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, basically in, again, in my sample size of maybe 300 people at this point, uh, that's maybe that uh, everybody I've met with 
who I could diagnose with a personality disorder has early childhood trauma. And oddly enough, a lot of the women that I have diagnosed with a bipolar disorder have some kind of sexual trauma history in their past as well. Right. I don't know what's going on there, but that's, it's very, very comorbid. I would lean that way too with my observations. And I I don't think I've worked with as many folks with borderline. Um, And I think like the one or two times I did actually give a borderline diagnosis, it was almost because like, in one case, it was specifically because he asked for it. Right. And it's like, I think I have this. Can we look into this? I'm like, okay. Um, yeah, and if somebody but, identifies with something, then... Right. I don't, I don't particularly see that being a very common scenario, though, with borderline. You'd <laughs> like, be surprised. <laughs> yeah. Really do, Honestly, yeah. yeah how wow. many people come in to my office and say, so I was reading up, you know, Dr. Google, yeah. <laughs> as we all dopingly call it. You know, I was, I was reading up on this and I really connected with this diagnosis and I think I might wow. have this. And I'm like, oh, that's really interesting. Tell me why you identify with that. Why do you connect with that? Interesting. Um, and, and it can be helpful to... If somebody's trying to get into like, you know, a DBT program or an eating well, disorder I agree. treatment, I agree. like having that on there can be useful. You know? be. And I think, I think them accepting that diagnosis, yeah. I think can be very helpful too. And yeah. it's, it's becoming a less and less stigmatized. Thank goodness yeah. um, that people are saying, Hey, I identify with us. And then I say, okay, well, let me give you my spiel about what, it, what quote unquote personality disorders mean, you know, mm-hmm. talk about attachment theory and early childhood stuff and you know, all that kind of stuff. And that mm-hmm. tends to put people mm-hmm. at ease with yeah. it. Yeah, yeah, that's great. But I would agree. Once you factor in traumatic events, childhood trauma, family version, attachment, I think once you factor in attachment, that just becomes a mysterious glue for a whole bunch of things. But yeah, absolutely. A lot of personality disorders suddenly have better explanations. Mm-hmm. Like trauma is a big one, ADHD, mm-hmm. a little bit more. Um, you know, even some of the more organic, organic disorders. But but yeah, I, I mean, not that I did disbelieve in the personality disorder. And mm-hmm. of course, I'll use it if I need it. But it I seems mean, like it's, there's... it's a thing. Like there's enough people who have this, these clusters of of symptoms that, that it's a thing. I just think that, you know, the people writing the books, I think they, anyway, <laughs> I think they all the personality disorders just need to be under trauma related disorders. But yeah, it and then, makes you know, sense. so yeah. we're almost here, like sitting. Well, we've talked about differential diagnosis. Now let's get critique. How would we rewrite it? Yeah, let's <laughs> it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. give me the pen. Give me the pen. Yeah, yeah. but yeah. Yeah, I mean, just you know, to, yeah, to bring it back to sort of differential yeah. diagnoses is to kind of you know look at those you know what I like to call the the big four. Mm-hmm. You know, look like get get real familiar with your DSM five and just read up on personality disorders. Read up on PTSD. Read up on bipolar disorder, read up on ADHD and look at what's the same and what's different. And one of my, we talked earlier about like, well, what are the questions you ask, you know, to, to help differentiate? And one of my, my two favorite questions actually are, um, well, you went into your doctor for the first time, they said you had depression and they gave you an SSRI. What happened? Right. Cause if somebody says, well, I took this SSRI and it didn't do anything. Or, or I took it this, exploded my brain. Or, yeah. yeah, or I took this SSRI and I started feeling a little better, but just kind of took the edge off. Or like I took this SSRI and I went manic. Or yeah. I took this SSRI and I became an angry, irritable, horrible, terrible person. I'm like, oh, you have bipolar disorder. Yeah. Let's yes. also make Those sure are, they weren't drinking while they were using that. Yeah. Well, fair. fair. Yeah. But yeah, yes. it, is, it yeah. is really nice. Or I wouldn't say not necessarily nice, but, but you know, in my clinic, we get a lot of people who've probably had eight or nine failures in different clinics mm-hmm. or different medical. It is a little bit frustrating and surprising how oftentimes in their history at like 
three out of nine, mm-hmm. that event already took place. And it was yeah. like, there was like six people, six clinics afterwards that they could have like picked that information mm-hmm. up and then no one has used the appropriate diagnosis yet. And it's like, wait a minute. Wait a second. I'm, on, actually, guys. I'm actually surprised at how many clinicians that I, I have worked with over the last few years had no idea that if you give an SSRI to somebody with yeah, bipolar disorder, it makes them manic. Right. And that mania can look not like euphoria, but like rage and anger and irritability. Right. right. Yeah. Absolutely. The other favorite question of mine is, so when you first did meth, what happened? (laughs) (laughs) Because they'll usually be able to tell you. Hmm. Like, well, I'm like, were were you really hyper? Were you quote unquote tweaking, right, with your friends? Or did you kind of chill out? Did you want to take a nap? Did you want to go clean the garage? And then they're like, oh, well, you know, like, yeah, I kind of the first time I did it, I just sort of got real tired and it was real weird. But then later I was like actually able to focus and go. That's why I continued to do it was because that's how I could function, you know, and I'm like, oh, you might have ADHD. And and don't underestimate the spectrum that can exist on ADHD. Absolutely. Um, ADHD is a spectrum that can go quite, 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 quite far. Um, Like I've had clients or individuals, you know, when I worked in more of a mental health, you know, community setting that uh, I had a kid who would cheek his meds or whatever, you know, (laughs) we have a kid who took like, you know, a week's supply or whatever. And his heart rate went down to like 55 beats per minute. Wow. (laughs) And then did his homework all night, you know? Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) And it's like, like, don't underestimate like what's going on there. You Mm -hmm. know, that's complicated. And and that is a very, very ADHD is not a simple diagnosis if it's far spectrum. Mm hmm. Well, and I, as a, uh, actually a little, little self-disclosure, therapeutically appropriate self-disclosure is I, I have ADHD, mm-hmm. uh, but I wasn't diagnosed until last year, actually, at 37 years old, okay. uh, when I was finally really sick and tired of why is my job so hard all the time? Why is it so hard? Why do I want to s- claw my skin off when I'm sitting down for so long, you know, and I ruled out a bunch, a bunch of stuff. And then I finally was like, all right. I, you know, something is going on. And one of my coworkers was like, well, you have ADHD, right? I was like, what? Mm, yeah. <laughs> huh? She's like, uh, what? <laughs> She's like, hey, you might want to, you might want to oh, no. look that, look, look into that. And I was like, oh, <laughs> so it, uh, yeah. And I had this really interesting experience of, you know, taking an amphetamine for the first time in my life. Cause mm. I was like, I'm like super square. Like I, you know, I drank some alcohol when I was in college and maybe smoked a cigarette and that was about it. Like I ain't done no drugs at all, you know, uh, took it in family for the first time and like cried and then wanted to take a nap all day. Mm. And I was like, um, hmm. <laughs> just from the sheer relief of it. Or- yeah. The noise in my head was gone. Oh, for wow. The first time in ever. Wow. Yeah. It was amazing. That sounds and brilliant. It was amazing. Yeah. And I would just have this experience of being like so focused and so quiet, you know? And, but then I was like drinking my regular coffee and my heart was just like, <laughs> and I was like, oh, I got to switch to decaf. Oh, yeah. Not yeah. all stimulants calm people with ADHD down. It's not that simple. No, right? no. Caffeine mm. makes me very hyper right. and then anxious and then paranoid. Yeah. Okay. And amphetamines make me like, cool, I'm going to like go get stuff done and then I'm maybe going to like read a book <laughs> and like maybe watch a movie and not poke at my phone while I'm watching the movie. Mm-hmm. Like maybe I'll just watch the movie. That so, seems like a game changer. It was totally awesome. Yeah. Um, but your mileage may vary. 
talk to your doctor. Talk yeah. to your doctor. Always talk to the doctor. But it is, but it is complex because some folks with ADHD have the experience of drinking a lot of coffee and getting tired where I didn't have that experience. Yeah. So, yeah. So I love Sam. Thank you for that disclosure. And that's that story. I think that's a really powerful experience and I'm really delighted for you. Thank you. Uh, so it's so great. Yeah. <laughs> I'm also thinking about how that just speaks to like this whole conversation around diagnosing um, in the, the the sex addiction trainings they I've been at um, there's sometimes there's this debate on you know, do we use the term sex addict or not and I, mm-hmm. I, I for me it's a very contentious term right we've talked about this. we've talked you about can't this. make up your mind <laughs> I know I know no I mean I, I don't like the term sure, and sure. for a lot of reasons sexual compulsive right or just addicted person or person yeah there, there's 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 a lot of, yeah, there's a lot there's there a lot that's of its own podcast yeah. but but the mantra that they they you know she's in the conversation in is you know you know, right label equals right diagnosis equals right treatment equals right outcomes. And it kind of speaks to, uh, I think it was in Josh, our old pro- professor, Jim Velez, who used right. to throw in this Chinese proverb, you know, the beginning of wisdom is to call a thing by its right name. All yes. with the idea that mm-hmm. you got to know what you're working with to work with it properly. Mm-hmm. And for us clinicians, that looks like diagnosing properly. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, knowing, you know, knowing the difference between ADHD, PTSD, borderline and bipolar, Mm -hmm. that's really essential. You know, knowing the difference between, you know, alcohol dependence versus just alcohol experimentation. Mm -hmm. That's really important to know. And um, that's the calling that we have to really Mm -hmm. do our diligence and really ask a lot of questions and really be open-minded, curious, uh, assume assume the best about our clients. Mm -hmm. And uh, I'd be really careful. Like my, my one friend who, you know, had a lot of trepidation about diagnosing. There's something I think that's really respectable about that. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, I think that again, you could somebody like you, like you said, like somebody missing that, that note about what the SSRI did to this person is, is, scary actually it is it is is really scary it leaves you feeling a little bit defeated about the whole system and that's why i like hanging out with you guys (laughs) (laughs) always call for a consult it's totally fine always call for a consult and you know again it's it's your diagnoses can be provisional you can be conservative with your diagnoses it's Mm. okay to say, you know, I'm not sure. Here's what my spidey senses are saying, as I like to call them. Because we all, a lot of counselors, we do have this intuition over time. I think we do. And, you know, saying, I'm not entirely sure, but I'm going to treat your symptoms, right? Like the, the the four Venn diagrams overlap a little too much for me to, to get a proper diagnosis, but we're going to treat your symptoms, and with medication, if that's something your client chooses to do, we're going to throw it at the wall. We're going to see what sticks. And that's right. going to tell us a lot of information as well. Indeed. So speaking to the student, the counseling or social work student uh, who is just learning about diagnosing, maybe in the diagnosis class, uh, or to the uh, seasoned professional who humbly acknowledges that they haven't quite learned everything and may need a touch up here and there. What sort of advice, words of wisdom, words of encouragement, or words of gentle rebuke? <laughs> <laughs> I would say definitely the, 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 the diagnoses that you're seeing the most. Uh, just occasionally review your diagnostic criteria for those, because I think occasionally we can kind of get complacent and right. forget that there's, that there's certain diagnostic criteria that have to be met in order to give somebody a diagnosis. And I've actually had one or two assessments come back to me because somebody said like, hey, they don't meet criteria for this diagnosis. The information on the assessment does not meet criteria for this diagnosis. I'm like, ah, crap, what I miss? 
you know, I missed something. So, you know, get, get to know your, your top four, top five diagnoses that you're seeing a lot. And those I'm going to tell you right now are going to be major depressive disorder versus dysthymia, general anxiety disorder versus social phobia, Hmm. PTSD versus personality disorder, ADHD or PTSD. Did I ever say that? Versus bipolar. Versus bipolar. Right. And schizoaffective disorder, bipolar type versus bipolar one with psychotic features. Those are the ones. Get to know those really well. Get to know those two. I think I'll throw in from my end too, you know, the difference between a substance use disorder and any other disorder. Um, you know, the difference between someone who's actively under the influence of meth or someone who's experiencing mania. Um, and then within the realm of addictions and compulsions too, is, you know, the difference between somebody who is experimenting and exploring and doing some, some crazy chaotic things versus someone right. who's, mm-hmm. you know, developed dependence and it's become a normative part of how they function. Mm-hmm. Um, there are some differences there. Yep. And the other thing is just, you know, meet some people. If you're working in an agency, you'll have a built-in consultation group, which is fantastic. If you work in a group practice, you have a built-in consultation group. If you're going in private practice, go find a consultation group. Go find a consultation group. Just find people with, uh, I'm lucky enough to have somebody on my team who is really good at diagnosing psychotic disorders because she used to be a psych NP before she became a counselor. That's handy. It's so handy. And it's I can just go to her anytime and, and talk to her about uh, psychotic disorders and just cultivate a group of people with a lot of different talents for sniffing out different diagnoses and talk to them a lot. Cool deal. Sam, if someone who's listening wanted to get a hold of you, what's the way that you are open to being gotten a hold of? Oh, that's a really good question. We could put it in the liner notes if you need to think about it. We could put it in the liner notes, yes. Okay, we'll have it in the liner notes. I don't know where I want you guys to contact me at the (laughs) That's That's totally okay. That is an acceptable boundary. We like boundaries. Look on the link or something. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Or if you want to get a hold of Sam, you can contact me and I will contact her. Forward it along to to Reese. Yeah, let me think about that. I don't have a personal, professional email yet. Okay. Uh, So let me uh, me get back to you about that one. Yeah. That's totally okay. Uh, but thank you so much for coming on the podcast thank and so enlightening and enlivening us. And it's been great. Uh, thank you listener for checking along with us yet again. And also yet again, uh, if you like us and like what we're doing here, um, please uh, say so on iTunes with uh, five stars, at least four and a half. And <laughs> <laughs> we, uh, we can be found now on Instagram, Spotify and Twitter. And I think all the fun places. Um, but yeah. Let us know what you think. Even if you don't like us, it's still a conversation and we like feedback. So I love feedback. If if you disagree with anything I said today, please (laughs) email Reese. Thanks. Uh, e- email email Reese and he'll forward that along to me. I'm, I'm yeah. open to feedback. I'm really interested in other people's opinions about diagnosing because it right. is uh, challenging and it is art and a science and it's multifaceted sure. and I'm learning every day. And if we're wrong, we'll do an apology episode. <laughs> I also, I'll, do a follow, I'll do a, a follow up someday. Absolutely. Okay. Yeah. Sounds good. And if you're a therapist, you can come in and we'll maybe have like a forum. I don't know. It'll be great. <laughs> right. Well, thanks anyway. And let's keep the conversation going. We love your feedback and value the conversation. Please drop us a note at smartcouncilpodcast at gmail.com. Please also feel free to rate and review us on iTunes, SoundCloud, Spotify, and anywhere your podcasts are hosted. Smart Council has been edited by Breakfast Puppies. Our logo is by Thomas Moore. The music was by Nate Botsford. Thank you for listening, and let's keep the conversation going.
This podcast was edited and produced by breakfastpuppies.com.